Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Man, it feels good in here, doesn't it? It feels great. Don't you feel good? You feel alive? I'm not, nobody's buying it. Nobody's buying it. Amy's shaking her head. No, we're not buying it. Hey, at least today, I don't have to watch people sleeping in the middle of my preaching. Nobody's falling asleep today. You can try, but you're not going not gonna to fall asleep today. We're going to start again our series, continue our series of the book of Genesis today. Genesis chapter 12 is where our focus is going to be. I'm going to read chapter 11, starting at verse 27, all the way through chapter 12, verse 9. So if you want to go ahead and locate that there in your copy of the Word of God. Genesis 11, starting at verse 27, all the way down through chapter 12, verse 9. Hey, at least we're not outside. This is way better than it is outside. At least you're not my chickens, my chickens, my poor chickens outside in the backyard. Yeah, they're freezing. They're okay, though. They're birds. They do fine. They're all right. Have a good attitude about it. It'll be all right. There you go. There you go. Okay, let's, let's gather ourselves here. Genesis 11, verse 27 through 12, 9. Let me pray for us. I'll pray publicly, if you will pray silently for God to work in our heart with his word today as we gather around his word to hear from him. Father, we thank you for this word, this eternal word that has been given to us, not because we have earned it, not because we deserve it, uh, not because we are worth this grace that you have given us. But because you are good and gracious, we have received everything from you. We deserve your wrath. Justly so, so we deserve your judgment because of our sin. We know if we stop and if we are honest, if we look in the mirror this morning, we know we are deserving of your wrath and judgment. And yet, here we are sitting with your people around your word. We have been given so much grace. We have experienced your goodness in great measure. I pray for all of our hearts this morning that you would thaw us, that you would enliven us, quicken us with your word. I pray for those who are here and there are several, I am sure, who are here who do not know you. They have not experienced your transformative word and the power of your word. It has not created life in them. I pray that today would be the day you would create in them new life by the speaking of your word and that you would exalt the name of your son Jesus, that you would make him clear to them, that they would see his beauty, that they would see his glory, that they would see his worth, and that they, their hearts, their, their rebellion would crumble in the face of his beauty and his glory. I pray that you would accomplish that work by your word today. And for us, who you have already brought to yourself, that you would encourage us in this journey of the Christian life, that you would fuel us anew to worship you, to obey you, to praise you, to speak of you, to follow you. We pray all of this for your sake, in your name. Amen. So I already said we are turning back to our series in the book of Genesis. If you would stand with me out of honor for God's word. Plus, who, I mean, just stand up. Do some exercises, you know. Genesis 11, verse 27. Follow along there as I read. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. 
Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the strengths of expositional preaching, which is the type of preaching we want to practice here at Trinity Church, one of the strengths of expositional book-by-book, section-by-section preaching is that you will eventually be sure to hit everything in the Bible. You can't just pick your favorite topics and your favorite passages. You have to hit everything. You have to come to every passage and deal with it in its context. The passage this morning that we come to is a very well-known passage. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 especially, is one of the most studied, most researched, most proclaimed texts in all of Scripture. But we're forced, because of dealing with the Bible section by section, book by book, we're forced to deal with it in its context. Chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12 that we come to today, serves as a major transition in the unfolding narrative of Genesis. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, from Genesis 3 to 11, we've seen God's grace and justice as he has responded to the sin of mankind. God has continued to sustain the hope of the promise made in Genesis 3.15. Remember the promise he gives in Genesis 3.15. There will be a seed of the woman who will come and will bring an end to death and sin. He will crush the head of the tempter, the serpent, the enemy, and be victorious. But that promise has been under constant threat. The threat of man's rebellion has put the promise in danger every step of the way. But now we come to Genesis 12. Genesis 12 marks a major transition now as God identifies a man named Abram. With Abram, God is going to do something new yet again. We've seen God do something new, right? With Adam, he creates the world. He makes man and places man in a land that he gives him. He promises to bless the man in that land and multiply him and fill the earth. But because of sin, man's sin leads to the flood where God identifies another man, Noah. He makes promises to Noah. He rescues Noah. He uncreates the world as it were and then he recreates. He does something new with Noah. And here, yet again, we see God doing something new as Noah and the sin that came after Noah led to the chaos and the confusion of Babel. 
with Babel, we see the dispersion of the nations across the earth. And that brings us to Genesis 12. God is doing something new yet again. With Abram, God demonstrates his determination to bring blessing to the entire creation. God is not going to be deterred with his purposes and plans. God is determined to bless the earth. And he has chosen Abram to accomplish this purpose. Therefore, the appearance of Abram in Genesis 12, the appearance of Abram marks for us the beginning of God's plan for redemption. God is going to bring redemption. He is going to accomplish salvation for the earth. And he's going to do it in and through this man named Abram. I'm going to give you three truths today about God's plan for redemption. God's plan for redemption, God's plan of redemption, first of all, is anchored in the truth of his sovereign election. God's plan of redemption is anchored in the truth of his sovereign election. Here it is very simply. God's choosing of Abram is not based on anything Abram has done. It's not based on anything of merit found in Abram. Listen to Joshua 24. This Joshua 24 describes for us the condition of Abram before he's called by God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. So you see, Abram is a pagan idol worshiper. He is a worshiper of false gods. This is the man that God chooses for his plan of redemption. God chooses. He elects Abram as the one through whom he will restore blessing to the world. Why does God choose Abram? We're not given a reason other than God's divine prerogative. This is God's choice. In fact, I think you can argue that God chooses the least likely. He chooses an idol worshiper with a wife who can't have children. He doesn't hail from just anywhere. He hails from Babylonia. The, the, the very place, the very area where the Tower of Babel took place, this is where Abram's from. An idol worshiper with a barren wife. This is who God chooses. You see, God has a habit of choosing the least likely. God has a habit of choosing those who no one else would choose. Because at the end of the day, he alone receives glory for salvation. No one else. God's choosing, God's election, is always in order to benefit undeserving sinners. This is, this is a point that's missed by so many people. Get, get this. In Scripture, God's sovereign choice is always only seen as positive. Do you, do you have a positive view of the doctrine of election? Election. 
Paul House in his Old Testament theology says this, election here, he's talking specifically about Genesis 12, election here does not exclude or condemn anyone. Rather, it works exclusively as a benefit to a world that has no intention of doing what is right. See, this, this is, this is the, the, the point. Genesis 3 through 11 proves this. The world is set in its rebellion. Mankind is determined in its rebellion against God. And yet God will not be deterred. He chooses the least likely as his avenue, as his vessel to bring blessing to a world who does not want it. What an amazing God who would act for our good, for our benefit in this way. This is the doctrine of election. The election of God is only always seen by Scripture in a positive light. So here's what that means by implication. And some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But, but others of us, we, when we hear the word election, we really stumble with that word, which is a biblical term. We stumble with it. Can I just, can I just encourage you? If you think of election negatively, then that implies you are being shaped in your understanding of this doctrine by something else other than Scripture. Because Scripture never speaks of it negatively. So, so where are you getting your negative take on it? Election is God moving in grace and mercy towards a world that does not want him, towards people that do not want him. The principle of election has already been evident throughout this story, throughout Genesis to this point. Adam was created by God. Adam didn't choose to be created. God chose to create Adam and place him in the land. Noah found himself in favor with God. He became a new Adam by God's choosing as God moves to save mankind. And now again we see with his choice of Abram, another new beginning. I also want you to see that God's choosing, it's always positive, it's always for the benefit of man. God's choosing is also always accompanied by his voice. Those whom he chooses, he speaks to. He gives his word. God speaks to Abram. God speaks and by so speaking brings this man, Abram, who did not know him to be the father of his chosen people. And this is the pattern of salvation. God's word comes to those that he has chosen. As his word speaks... God himself, by his word, by means of his word, brings into existence that which was not, that which did not exist. We've seen that, haven't we? In creation, God speaks and the worlds are created. This is the same with salvation. God speaks and life is given Just as he created the world by his word, so he creates a people that did not exist by his powerful word. So God speaks to a pagan idol worshiper and he becomes the patriarch of his people. What an amazing transformation. We see this pattern all the way through scripture. But now let's look at the content. What does God speak? This is the content of this word, this transformative word, which is spoken to Abram. And this brings us to our second truth about God's plan of redemption. God's plan of redemption is anchored in the truth of his sovereign election. And God's plan of redemption is formed around great promises. Great promises. Look at it there, verse 1 through 3 of chapter 12. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the first word given to Abram, did you see it there? The first word given to Abram is a command. Go. From your country, go. From your kindred, go. From your father's house, go to a land that I will show you. Leave everything. Leave your place, leave your people, leave your family, and go to a place that I will show you somewhere down the road. Wow. This command is closely followed by three promises given to Abram in, for him himself, individually. Three individual promises for Abram. Then, here's how the next couple verses are structured. He gives a command, God gives a command, followed by three individual promises. That's followed by a purpose or a result of these three promises, more of an exhortation, which is followed by three more promises. So I, I would argue that there are six promises found here in these three verses with one command and one exhortation. Let's look at the first three promises. He says, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And look at the three promises he makes to Abram individually. Look at them there. I will make you a great nation. Remember, this passage comes on the heels of the rebellion at Babel of the nations in Genesis 11. The nations rebel against God, but God has chosen one man with whom he will form a great nation. By implication, that entails two things. An offspring, he's going to give Abram offspring, and a land. The people has to have a place, a geographic place to inhabit. You'll see these two explicitly stated down in verse 7. We'll get to that in a minute. So Abram is being told that an entire people is going to come from him. A people with a shared language, a shared geographic identity, and some type of governmental structure. A nation. He's going to be a great nation. Wow. What if God came to you and told you that today? What an amazing promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. Second promise. I will bless you. So in the first promise that he's going to be a great nation, we see implicit the promise of land and seed or offspring. Here we see the explicit promise of blessing. So there you have that threefold theme again. We talked about it a few times through Genesis 1 through 11. Land, seed, and blessing. This is what was given to Adam. Land, seed, and blessing. Reiterated throughout. And now we find these three promises here given to Abram. He will be given a seed which will have a land and he will be blessed. Yahweh here is making a promise. The Lord is making a promise here to bless Abram and his nation. This blessing implies three things. In the Old Testament, blessing for a people implies three things. Prosperity, spiritually and materially. Prosperity, fertility and victory over your enemies. Wow. So he says to Abram, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. And your nation, you and your people, you're going to prosper in every way. You're going to prosper in every way and you're going to multiply. You are truly going to be great. And you're going to have victory over your enemies. What promises he gives to Abram here? Just, just a guy. Look at the third promise. The third promise, he says, I will make your name great. We saw back again at the Tower of Babel that men sought to make their name great. 
by their accomplishment, by their achievement. They wanted to make much of themselves with brick and mortar. But here we see God promising to make Abram's name great. He is going to exalt Abram. Abram's going to be remembered and future generations will honor his name. Abram's going to be famous. He's going to be significant in history. Now the same promise is actually going to be made to David many, many, many years in the future from this point. David is going to be told the same thing. David, I'm going to make your name great. Here we see a connection between the Davidic covenant, the promises to David, and the promises made to Ab Abram. God is going to accomplish something of historical significance through these two men. And their name will be connected to something of extreme, exalted significance. Now these promises, you take these three promises... These promises are nothing short of astounding, aren't they? But the Lord is not done. This isn't where he ends. With great blessing comes great responsibility. The result, and you could, again, I, I think you could grammatically see this as a second exhortation or as an as a exhortation coming out of a command coming out of the first command. You will go and be a blessing. You will be a blessing. Abram's name will become synonymous with blessing. Attached to this, attached to this reality that Abram will be a blessing are three more promises. So let's look at them quickly. The Lord gives three more promises. And these promises are not for Abram individually, but these three promises are for a much broader audience. Look at them there. He says, I will bless... The Lord says, I will bless those who bless you. In other words, you do right by Abram, then you too will be blessed. Second promise, I will curse those who dishonor you. So just like the first, it's the negative part of the first one. If you do right by Abram and his family, you will be blessed. If you don't do right by Abram, even if it's not intentional. We're going to see this as we go through the next several chapters. If you don't do right by Abram and his family, you will bring curse upon yourself. And then the third promise here that expands out, he says, I will curse those who dishonor you. And then he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Or you could translate that, they will bless themselves in you. The, the idea here is that Abram will be the desire of the peoples of the earth. They will look at his blessing. They will look at the favor of God upon him. And they will say that we would be like Abram. That we would have Abram's blessing upon us. All the families of the earth will seek to find blessing in Abram. Now, five times, in, in the verses we just read through, five times you see the term bless or blessing. You probably do not realize, but that the term curse is used five, exactly five times in chapters three through 11. This is not accidental. The promise made to Abram, the promise of blessing made to Abram is seen as a complete reversal, a removal of the curse that sin has brought upon the world. God is determined to bring blessing to his creation and Abram will be the vehicle. Chapter 12 begins the story of God's redemption of mankind, the reversal of the curse the removal of the curse of sin and death. Remember, remember in chapters 3 through 11 what we've seen about curse. What does curse involve? Curse is separation from God. Curse brings shame and enslavement. Curse 
means that the ground will not yield its fruit. Curse is barrenness and violence that defiles the ground with blood. This is curse. But God has moved now in Abram to bless. Blessing is communion with God. Communion with God that gives and sustains life. Blessing is freedom for man. And the ability to rule in creation as man was given to do. Blessing is the abundance of life. The ground yielding forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also will not wither. And whatsoever he does will prosper. That's Psalm 1. This is blessing. Blessed is the man whose delight is the law of the Lord. Blessing is harmony with creation and with fellow man. So blessing is life. Curse is death. God is going to bring salvation, redemption, and restoration through Abram. Thus, at this point, Abram emerges as the central character in all of the Bible, in, in the scripture at this point. The central figure for God's redemptive plan. So what is Abram to do with all these promises? Well, let me give you truth number three. God's plan of redemption is anchored in the truth of his God's sovereign election. God's plan of redemption is formed out of great promises. But, and here's the, the third point, God's plan of redemption requires faith. It requires faith which shows itself in obedience. Put yourself in the place of Abram for a moment. Abram hears from God and is commanded by God to leave everything. Leave everything, Abram, and I will give you more than you can imagine. More than you could ever fathom. It sounds great. How would you, what would be your response? That sounds great. <laughs> but can I get a little evidence of some kind? Can I get some proof? Can I, can, I, can I get some proof that you're actually able to do this? It sounds great, but before I leave everything, can I get some kind of assurance? Beyond just your word? I just want to be wise about this, right? Seems reasonable. But that's not what you get from Abram at this point, is it? Not at this point. Notice the promises, I've already said this, but the promises in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the promises are given in the context of a command. And the obedience to the command is what proves the faith. So God gives a command... And in that command, he gives promises. Abram believes the promises. He believes the word of God. He entrusts himself to, he entrusts himself to the character of this God who is promising him. God gives command with promises. Abram believes the promises. Therefore, he obeys the command. Now, we're going to have an opportunity in the coming weeks to talk more about faith. This is going to be a big theme throughout the next several chapters. But I think it's important for us to stop right now and consider for just a few moments the relationship here of faith to obedience. Think about how silly this would have been. How, how, how ridiculous would it have been for Abram to hear from God this command and the promises to profess his faith in God, 
I believe you, God. I really, 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 really believe you. With all my heart, I believe you, God. Thank you for all of these awesome promises. All these promises are awesome. Thank you. I will stay right here with Dad until all of these things come true. No, see, you, you know that that's not faith. Thank you, God. I really believe this, but I am going to stay right here. This is not faith. I think, and I fear that for most of us, faith, for many of us, is an abstract idea. Faith is abstract. It's an idea that we have. However, scripturally, faith is much more concrete. Faith has substance to it. Faith has real world consequences. Faith is entrusting oneself to the word of God as authoritative. Over against what I may see, over against what I may feel, over against the word of someone else. I'm entrusting myself to the word of God as authoritative, which then will manifest itself in obedience to that authoritative word. That's why the epistle of James says, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now you, you've all seen the chair illustration, haven't you? You guys know the chair illustration? You see, it's not, it's not cold in here at all. It's getting warm, isn't it? No? Maybe that's because I'm up here and you're down there. Remember the chair illustration? How many of you have been to camp somewhere, youth camp, and you saw the chair illustration, right? There's a chair and somebody's trying to explain what faith is. And they say, faith is dependence. All you got to do is sit in the chair. Depend upon the chair. It will hold you up. And everybody goes, oh, that's faith. But internally, we're also going like, but, but how do I know if I'm sitting in the chair or not? I don't know, I'm just being honest. I, I would see that and be like, but uh, I still don't know if I'm sitting in the chair. You, you, know, you know why the illustration works? The illustration, it may not help you understand faith any better, but the illustration itself works. Why? Because you can see a person sitting in a chair. It's visible. And you're like, if I just had something visible, that would be helpful. Am I sitting in the chair? Am I like kind of sitting in the chair with like kind of my weight in the chair? I, I don't know. Faith, faith is not abstract. Faith is concrete. This is why God gives command with faith. Faith is not something we feel. It's not a feeling that we have. Faith is not just simply an idea. Faith, again, is entrusting oneself to the word of God over against anything else, which then manifests itself, that entrusting of oneself manifests itself, shows itself in obedience. See, the problem for, for us is that we have separated faith from visible action. Faith is not static. Faith acts. Faith obeys. Faith cannot be separated from obedience to the word. Again, that's why the promises of God are always accompanied by commands. Faith is proven. You know what the chair is? You know what the chair is for faith? The chair is obedience. 
That's what the chair is. Obedience. Obedience. Even when it's really hard. Obedience. Even when temptation is strong. See, this is why we've said a couple times in the last several weeks, sin, willful sin, is always rooted in unbelief. Always. In order for me to sin, I have got to turn from what I have said I believe about God. I've got to reject it. And, and this is so important. See, the action of faith, listen, the action of faith isn't raising a hand of decision. The, the action of faith isn't walking an aisle in tears. The action of faith isn't praying a prayer. The action of faith, Jesus says, is taking up your cross. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's faith. Doesn't that sound a lot like what God tells Abram to do? <laughs> Leave everything, Abram. Now, you may look at that passage and think, well, Terah is already dead. No, no, no. Terah is not dead. Terah doesn't die until two years before Sarah dies, if you look at the math of it. Terah is still alive and well in Haran. Abram leaves his father while his father is living. He leaves his father. He leaves his country. He leaves his kindred. And it goes to a land that he's never seen. Abram obeys and goes because he believes the clear promises of God. So as he leaves, he goes and he journeys into the land of Canaan from the northern borders. He goes into the land of Canaan from the north, headed south on a southern trajectory. He arrives at a place called Shechem. Something important happens at Shechem. There at Shechem, the Lord appears to him. Do you see that? This is the first time since the opening pages of Genesis that the Lord has appeared to anyone. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. The Lord tells him there that he has arrived in the land. This is it, he says. Abram, this is the land. I'm going to give you all of this. What an assurance. What a reassurance that would have been. I'm going to give this land to you and to your offspring. He makes the implicit statement and promise above explicit. And what does Abraham do in response? He builds an altar to the Lord. Can you imagine how reassuring this would have been for Abram at this moment? He builds an altar to the Lord. We're not sure how the Lord appears to him, but we know he does. And the effect is that Abram worships God. From there, Abram moves to another place called Bethel or near Bethel. And there he sets up his tent. He builds another altar to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. The idea is that it seems Abram stays here a while. He pitches his tent there in the land and worships there in the land of Canaan. Ongoing for some time. Moses is writing this account many, many, many years later. He's writing this account to the children of Israel as they are getting ready to go into that same land. And the message to the children of Israel is clear. Canaan land is where the children of promise worship the Lord. This is where we worship. Moses is communicating to those people. But I want, and this, this, is, this is the end, okay? Trying to hurry up for your sake. I want to point out something here about Abram's worship. I want to point out something about Abram's worship. Abram has not received any of the promises yet. He's not actually seen anything that God has promised take place. 
There are two major problems with the promises God has given to him. And that is, he cannot, his wife cannot have children. So God has promised him seed, he's promised him offspring, he's promised he'll, he'll be a great nation, but his wife can't have children. The other major problem is that this land that the Lord appeared to him and said, this is it, that land is filled with Canaanites. His wife can't bear children, and the land is inhabited by someone else. And yet, get this, this doesn't prevent Abram from worshiping. Do you see? Abram worships even though he has not received any of the promises as of yet. Abram worships although his wife is still barren. Canaanites inhabit the land he's been promised and he's living in a tent very, very far removed from the idea of a great nation, Abram still worships. This is faith. That's what faith is. You want to see faith? Faith is continuing in obedience and worshiping the Lord Faith worships when all seems impossible or far off. Faith worships the Lord. Dear brother and sister, this morning, believe it or not, as great as all these promises are made to Abram, you and I, as we sit here today in this cold room, you and I have been given so much more than Abram was given. Do you understand that? See, we, we talk about, in this great, a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great. God promised all that to Abram. But God has given us something even greater. Do you understand what you have this morning? What you've been given? We have seen the promise of God fulfilled in the Son of God. Jesus, the Christ. The Christ, Jesus, has fulfilled the promises made to Abram. His promises in Jesus are clear, and they have been given to us, us who are not a people, us who are not from Abram's family. They have been given to us, the pagan idol worshipers, the unfaithful ones, the wicked ones, the sinful ones, the ones deserving of wrath and judgment. His promises have been given to us. Why? Because he is good and gracious. Hear this passage from Galatians. Know then that it is those of faith. We, we don't inherit the blessing by birth. We're not from Abram. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Where's your faith at this morning? As I was coming into the room this morning, talking with a couple of people, we have trials, don't we? We have struggles. We have difficulties. We have doubts. We have illnesses. We have all types of temptations on many different levels. But God has called us by his sovereign choice, not by anything we have done, but because he is good and gracious. He has brought to us the word of the Christ. 
He has caused us to see the truth of who Jesus is. And he is preserving us. He is keeping us by that word. And we are his people, the people of faith, living in obedience, even when it is difficult, living in worship. That's why we're here. We're worshiping him, showing our faith in his promises. Be encouraged today. No matter what you face, he will make good on his promises in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the example, the pattern that we have been given here with Abram. Thank you for how you sustain us by your word. I pray that you would encourage us that we would even, as we, as we examine our lives, we would even see our faith in how we've obeyed and how we want to worship you and bring our worship to you, even in the midst of difficulty, even when the money is running out or even when the, the body's not responding well and, and we're ill, even in the midst of very difficult times. Lord, you sustain us. And this, by this, we see our faith. Where else could we go? For you have the words of eternal life. I pray for your people this morning. I pray for these brothers and sisters that you would sustain them, con continue to keep them. And I pray for, again, for those who are here that do not know you. They have settled for a cheap version of faith, one that does not manifest itself in obedience and worship. I pray that you would convict, expose, and then bring life to them. We would forsake all for the sake of your son, Jesus, for he is worthy of everything. He is preeminent in all things. In your name we pray, amen.